0: Well, good evening everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here, and this is our second week of a three-week series that we're doing on the Psalms. Now, in 2007, I was scheduled for this visit to the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, where the organization that I was working for ran a project. We were, uh, it was an education program for young Muslim girls, but this project had a problem because the school had become a frequent target of the Taliban, and the students on their way to school were being threatened, they were being attacked, they were even being kidnapped. And so we had this problem, I was supposed to go and check it out, and the reason for this problem is actually woven into the rug that you see on the screen. So this rug is part of this thousands-year-old tradition of Afghan mothers passing on to their daughters this traditional weaving technique over generation and generation. But in 1979, the patterns that were in these rugs started to change. Because first, Afghanistan was invaded and it created over a million refugees. They fled to places like Pakistan and Iran and India. And then a civil war broke out and there was even more fighting and then in this vacuum of power, in amidst all this fighting, the Taliban rose up, and they started to implement this really strict interpretation of Islamic law, which meant that women, like our students, had almost no access to public life. But even as these women were behind closed doors, even as they were living in refugee camps, even as they were really far from home, they continued to weave these rugs. And they started to weave in the symbols of all the suffering that they had endured. And you can see them in there. There are tanks and helicopters. There are machine guns. Some of these rugs have the languages of their oppressors woven right in, right there with the flowers and the geometric patterns. And a lot of these rugs were used as prayer rugs. They would spread them on the ground and kneel on them and pray. Well, tonight we're gonna be looking at Psalm 88, which we chanted and you guys were phenomenal uh, a few minutes ago. But Psalm 88 is a type of Psalm called a lament. And laments are part of this kind of broader category of Psalms that's probably best characterized as the protest Psalms. These are Psalms of mourning and weeping. They're Psalms that cry out to God in grief, in anger. They complain. They sort of beat against God's chest and wail and moan and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And these protest psalms have some of our most scandalous psalms, some verses that I wish we could just cut out of the Bible and toss aside because they make me really uncomfortable. They ask God to have vengeance on our enemies. There is this rage in some of them that's so raw it's hard to read. And they do all of this through poetry. These psalms are beautiful. They are rich, they're textured, and they have these images in them that stick in our imaginations for a really long time. And so I want to suggest tonight that these psalms of protest, these laments, are like these war rugs because the psalmists have taken all of their suffering and they have woven it into something beautiful, and then they have spread it on the ground and thrown themselves on it and prayed from it. And we can do that too. So kids, if you have your journals, I have an assignment for you. You can design your own rug. It does not need to have tanks in it, although it could. But if you had a rug that just showed what your life is like, the kinds of stuff you like to do, favorite vacations you've taken, favorite things to play with, put all of that design into your rug or whatever else you'd like to do in your books. Well, last week we talked about how the Psalms train us to see the world the way it really is. We talked about how this creating, saving, speaking, governing with us God is the realest thing in the universe, and he is. But holding on to the realness of that vision is hard in a world that's full of pain because something has gone horribly wrong. Sin has entered the world. It has infected our hearts and all of creation, and it's been wreaking havoc everywhere. And so part of seeing the world as it really is, which the Psalms are training us to do, is opening our eyes and seeing that too and figuring out what to do with all that suffering. And the protest psalms show us that the psalmists see it too. They are wrestling with God too over the pain and suffering in this life. And they are fighting to hold on to what is most real in a world that feels full of evidence to the contrary. And Jesus actually did the same thing. As a Jewish person, Jesus would have grown up praying the Psalms regularly, singing them like we did. This was just culturally normal for him. And then we see him lean into that habit of Psalm prayer at his most difficult moments when he is confronted with evil and sin. Like when he's in the desert and Satan is tempting him or after Jesus' last supper with his disciples, when Judas had already left to betray him. We even see Jesus praying a psalm from the cross at his moment of death. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight from Psalm 22. Jesus prays his suffering through the words of the psalms, and we can do that too. So let's get into our psalm for tonight, into Psalm 88, that lament song that we sang. This is a really bleak psalm. I don't know if you felt it as we were chanting. It's dark. It begins in desperation, and it only gets more intense. The psalmist basically says, "'I've been crying day and night. My soul is full of trouble. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm slipping into the pit.'" I have no strength. I'm like a murdered person in the grave. You've forgotten me. You've cut me off. You've dumped me in the deepest, darkest pit. And then you've sent storms to pummel me. My friends have all left. They hate me. My life feels like a prison. And I'm paralyzed. And I can't even take a step forward. It goes on and on like this for 18 verses. And there is never any tidy resolution. There's no place where the psalmist says, and then I remembered God and it just all got better. No, it actually ends in this utter isolation where the psalmist accuses God of hiding his friends. The end. So that's our text for tonight. And even though it seems bleak and dark, and pretty hopeless, The psalm is actually a huge gift to us because it shows us the way all the protest psalms show us, that we can pray our raw pain. The psalm shows us we don't have to pray nice. We don't have to be polite when we feel like we are dying inside. Our prayer can actually be roaring, moaning, weak, desperate, We can pour out our hearts to God with all the emotional and bodily force that we can muster. And this is how we pray when we are in the pit. We protest. We lament. Well, in that book that I referenced last week, Answering God by Eugene Peterson, he writes, Prayer is primal speech. Language gets its start under the pressure of pain. Our first sound is a wail. All our early speech is an inarticulate eloquence that gets us what we need to survive. Food, warmth, comfort, love. We need help. We need another. Prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and know it and who believe or hope that God can get them out prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and know it and who believe or hope that God can get them out. Is this how you pray? Well, we don't see much of that believing or hoping that God can get them out in this psalm. But there's a little bit. There is this glimpse in verses 9 through 12. So listen to verse 9 says, my sight fails because of trouble, meaning I can't see you, God. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched forth my hands unto you, meaning I am reaching for you. I am groping around in the dark here. I am calling for you. Where are you? God seems to have gone missing, and yet the psalmist keeps talking to him. And this is an incredibly hopeful thing to do. To keep talking to God when we're not even sure he's listening. When we don't see any evidence that he is good. When it feels like death and darkness are closing in on us. This psalmist just keeps calling. He keeps reaching. And then in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist asks God a series of questions. He asks, do you show wonders among the dead, or shall the dead rise up and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be shown in the grave, or your faithfulness in destruction? Shall your wondrous works be known in the dark, and your righteousness in the land where all things are forgotten? And the obvious answer to these questions seems to be no, no. All this good stuff about God, all his wonders and his loving kindness and his faithfulness and his righteousness, none of that is going to be seen in the psalmist's life if God just leaves him to die miserably in the pit. But the psalmist doesn't seem to doubt that those good things are true. He actually is just desperate, he's begging to see them. And no matter how deep his agony goes, his desire to see God as God really is, is actually deeper. And this is what we need in our pain. We need God. We need him to meet us in the fullness of who he is. And the psalmist's questions show us a way of wrestling and hanging on to that of almost daring God to convince us who he is. And then in verse 12, we get the psalmist resolved to just keep doing this, to start wrestling all over again every single morning, despite all his tears, all his anger, all his accusations, the psalmist just resolved to keep calling. He's going to keep reaching and keep praying. This is what hope looks like in the pit, clinging for dear life to who God is. So I want to focus for a minute on who God is in Jesus Christ, in the God-made flesh that Nathan read about in our gospel earlier. Because up to this point, we've talked a lot about a God who made the world and who's holding it all together But we haven't talked about the God who suffers and dies. And that is the God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're thinking, you know what, Amy? This kind of feels like a stretch to jump from this Old Testament psalm all the way to Jesus. But actually, all the psalms jump to Jesus. Because we know Jesus told us so. After he died and was resurrected, After he appeared to his disciples in Luke 24, Jesus said that everything he had just done was to fulfill the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms. He is what all these Psalms are longing for and hinting at. Every protest, every lament, every primal cry to be rescued, all of it points to Jesus, to this Messiah who is coming, who will suffer and die and rise again to save us. Now, a minute ago, I said that the obvious answer to the psalmist's questions was no. No, the psalmist can't make God's attributes known when he's in the grave and in the dark. But Jesus can. And in Jesus, the answer to those questions becomes this resounding yes. Because in the suffering and death of Jesus, we see God himself going into the darkness. God himself enduring destruction and death. God shows his loving kindness in the grave because he goes there. And there's no bigger response to our suffering than this, than God choosing to suffer himself, than God choosing to become like us, having to endure the darkness. And then his response gets even bigger because he doesn't stay there. He rises from the dead. And he declares that death and pain are not the end of this story There is a day when all the painful things will be set right by a God who knows and gets what it's like. This is the God that we cling to when we lament and when we protest. A God who is profoundly with us in our suffering. A God who's clinging to us with the promise of his resurrection. Well, I want to take just a brief detour on verse 11, which says, Shall your wondrous works be known in the dark, and your righteousness in the land where all things are forgotten? And this past week, we sent a team to a land where all things are forgotten, to West Asia, to this place where the apostles walked and preached and planted churches in the years almost immediately following Jesus' resurrection, where they did the kinds of things that we heard about in the reading from Acts and from Luke, where they traveled all over the map, where new communities of believers were springing up everywhere. We're going to hear about West Asia a lot as we keep reading through Acts this summer. It's a place where Jesus was once known, where he was once worshipped, but he has been forgotten. And so our team has crossed time zones and their comfort zones to walk on these ancient streets and to touch these ancient walls and to remember and praise the name of Jesus in a place that has forgotten him. This is not flashy work. It's pretty quiet. But it is this powerful act of resurrection hope. It is a physical act of faith that what has been forgotten will be remembered, that what has died will be resurrected. And it's such a privilege to send them and to pray for them, and I'm really excited to hear their stories when they return. So back to these rugs. Back in 2007, I actually never went on that trip to the Afghanistan border because I found out I was pregnant with my first child, and I wanted to protect her from the dangers of what was then a war zone. And it was a privilege to be able to do that. But there are millions and millions of people in the world who can't do that. They can't opt out of the circumstances they're in. They would give anything to feed and protect their children, their neighbors, themselves, but they can't. And the psalms of protest won't let us forget that. Sometimes we need these psalms to pray our own pain, but sometimes we need them so that we can enter into and pray the pain of others. And I hope that we will be people who choose to do that, who do what Jesus did, who choose to enter deeply into other people's suffering. May we be people who pray these psalms of protest, who cry out that this is not the way it is supposed to be. May we all spread out these psalm rugs full of images of the world's suffering and of our own and kneel down and pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.